class back there, if they, uh, you so desire. I want to start off this morning just by saying thank you for all of you who are praying for, uh, for us and for particularly Betsy's family uh, as kind of going through the loss of Betsy's grandfather. We, we had a good week in Ohio, uh, some hard travels, some long travels and whatnot, but um, saw God work and, and was a good time. So just want to want to thank our church for for lifting that whole endeavor in prayer. It was it was good to get the chance to send off uh, to send him off and uh, and to honor him and honor the Lord in the process. So um, just thank you, thank you all. We are uh, we're continuing in the Psalms today. We're going to be in Psalm sixty seven and. Um, I want to say this is a short psalm, which might come as a relief uh, to some of you uh, for some of the, the lengths of, of things we've been in for a little while. Um, psalm 67 is a psalm of joy. It's also a psalm uh, where we get a, a real good glimpse, a good picture of God's heart, or at least one specific piece of God's heart. This is a peace that we need to realize, a peace that we need to embrace, and it is a peace that will change us. It'll change our church. It'll change our, our mission, our focus. It, it even has potential to change the world if we, would, if we would embrace it. So let me read this uh, for us and, and let us continue in our endeavor of being in the word this is psalm 67 hear this psalm may god be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations let the peoples praise you O god let all the peoples praise you let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with, with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. After hearing that, can you guess, begin to form in your own head and, and heart, your own mind, what God's focus is here? What might change in us or what piece of his heart do we need to embrace? Of course, I talk about joy a lot, and this is a psalm of joy. We're going to see in this psalm that he mentions Three words which are almost synonyms, 11 times in seven verses. They are the words nations, peoples, and earth. 11 times in seven verses, the psalmist works in the nations, the peoples, and the earth. And they all are meant to be a word about the same group of people, the same subject. 11 times, 7 verses that we might, church, hear a bit of God's heart. Today what we're going to do is look at, at three things. The first thing is we're going to look at God's heart for the nations. The second thing we're going to look at is God's hope for the nations. And the third thing that we're going to look at is our heart and hope for the nations. So you're taking notes. That's our roadmap before us. And I want to dive right in. As I just mentioned, 11 times in seven verses, verses, God speaks of, the psalmist writes of, we sing of, if we were to sing this psalm, the nations, the peoples, and the earth. This psalm is but a sampling, a tiny window into God's heart for the nations, for the rest of the world, for global people. This is something we should know. Now, let me just say, if this is something you don't know, then this is the first time I'm going to call you to repentance in this sermon. 
Because if you are unaware that God cares about the nations, that God has a heart for lost people around this entire world, people of all tribes, all colors, all languages, all creeds, all peoples, then there are two things you need to repent of. The first is, is I think, probably a selfish heart that has caused you to see God and God's blessing aimed solely at you. The second thing is that you have not read Scripture nearly enough. If you have ever read through Scripture, then you should have a view of what we might call the meta-narratives of this whole book. And there's a number of them. Right, How he traces salvation all the way through and his sovereign plan all the way through. Uh, what he's doing that leads eventually to the church. Right? We see these, these themes that run all the way through. One of the themes we should see if we've ever read scripture, if you've ever read enough of this book, is that God has a heart for the nations. It goes from the very beginning all the way to the very end. When we see all nations gathering together in the, the great city, singing praises to God as he is with his people from all nations, tribes, and tongues. From the very beginning, God had a plan that would draw all nations, people of all nations and tribes and people to him, even in selecting one nation, even in choosing to find one family to be a blessing, even in choosing one nation of Israel, out of the people, out of Abraham, who we read earlier from today, God had a heart for the nations. In choosing one, we saw in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, just a few minutes ago, I read that for us, that God would bless Abram, that God would bless his family, and that the purpose of that would that be all nations would be blessed. Right? So when God first selects one people, one specific family, one tribe to become a nation, his mind, his heart is already on the entire earth and all peoples being blessed by that one. Now this, if you continue to read in scripture, you continue to read through the Pentateuch, what you see is provision after provision so that the nations would know how powerful and awesome God is. When you get to the, the big picture story of what happens in Egypt when God shows up and, and plagues happen, miracles really, each one of those miracles is meant to say our God is great and you, the nations, should pay attention. You get to the laws in the Old Testament and amongst other reasons for them, one of those reasons is that God's people would be set apart and different. Did you know that some of the laws actually are fairly arbitrary? They are God saying, if you do this, you'll be different from everybody else. And he wants that. He wants his people to be different so that other nations will see and look and say, wow, there's something different about you that they might see God. You continue on and they escape from Egypt and they bring with them hundreds, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Egyptians into the wilderness. Why? Because, because they saw how big God was. And they said, well, we're going with, with you all because you know this big God. You continue on in the, the na in, in the nature of Israel and what God is doing all the way through. And what we see over and over again is that God says, I want you to be different so that they will see and they will know how good and how great I am. This is actually the thing that Israel fails at the most. Over and over and over again, they decide they are going to be just like everybody around them. In idolatry and in, and in relationships and in how they live and what they worship and everything they do. And what happens because of it, God, God gets missed by entire generations of people. And he calls them to account. And he says, I will call you to account. And when I do, the nations are going to ask a question. They're going to wonder, why has your God done this to you? Why are you being punished? Why are you being carted off? Well, it's because, because God. 
Church, this carries all the way through the prophets. Over and over again, you see this theme of the nations. And then you get to Jesus, and, and Jesus focuses on one same group of people, the Jews, and yet even in his ministry, he can't help but reach out into other lives, into people who speak other languages and worship other things and do other things and live in different ways. Why? Because God's heart has always been for the nations. And that carries all the way through, and eventually Paul will be called to the nations, other Christians, believers also called to the nations, and we here this day are here because the church took seriously God's heart for the nations. If they hadn't, there would not be a church in Lahana, Colorado. I mean, to be fair, Colorado probably wouldn't exist either. See, because the, the church's realization that, that God is a heart for the nations, for the entire world, all people groups, all tribes, tongues, and nations, caused history to be what it is. And the face of the world has changed because the church took realistically that there are peoples and tribes and tongues and nations in other parts of the world that knew God not. Church, God has a heart for the nations. God has a heart for the nations, and we see that in Psalm 67. We see that as, as the psalmist just sings out about the nations and the peoples and all the peoples and all the earth. And church, I don't know about you, but I take really seriously when Scripture talks about all. That we should. God's Word is beautiful, and it's, it's wonderful. And it shows us the, the picture of Him, and it, it tells us who we should be. And we're going to come back around to that at the end of this. Because God is a heart for the nations, and that heart is connected to a hope. And that hope is what we're going to see really primarily as we really get into Psalm 67 today. And, and I'm just going to give you a little roadmap here at this point. We're going to look at four things. God's hope for the nations is that first of all, they would know him. That second of all, that they would praise him. Third, that they would enjoy him. And fourth, that they would fear him. Okay, so we're going to look at knowing God, praising God, enjoying God, and fearing God. And we're going to see that out of this passage. We're going to skip verse 1 for now. And in verse 2, we see it, it say this. Psalmist writes, That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. That your way may be known. Friends, something else that you should know from Scripture, because this is why we have Scripture, is that God wants to be known. It is why the, the Scriptures were given to us. It's also why Jesus came to us in the way that he did. It's one of a few reasons. God wants to be known. And, and church, if you don't know this already, people... God is worth knowing. Every bit of him is worth knowing. I've said this before, but you and I could spend every minute of the rest of our lives in the endeavor of knowing God better, still not know him at all, and every minute of that would be worth every bit of that endeavor and every bit of the rest of our lives. God is that good. He's also that knowable. See, because we could spend the rest of our lives, some of us, that's a longer time than others, knowing him. And we wouldn't get to the end of that endeavor having missed out. Still wondering. Now, there'd still be more to know, but I believe we would be satisfied in what we would know. The grand purpose of Scripture is that we would know him. This is the purpose of the incarnation. John 14, 9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. This is also one of the reasons why when we as Christians, thanks Rick, um, actually need this today. Why when we become Christians, the Spirit is given to us. Why? So that we would know God. 
The Spirit comes in us, and we know the Spirit. John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, church, what is included in he will teach you all things? If not knowing God. Right? The most important thing, or one, to know. God wants us to know him. And we need to know him. The psalm here is going to highlight two specific ways of knowing him. Two specific things of him that we need to know. The first is his ways. We need to know his ways. Church, to know God's ways is to know God. Because for God, God is not one who can be parsed out or separated or divided. What God does always flows out of who he is. So the more we get to know how God works and what he does, the more we get to know who he is, right? There's some things we should know about his ways from Scripture. The first is that his ways are higher than ours. They are transcendent. They are bigger. They are beyond us. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, right? His, his, high, his ways are higher than us. And what does that mean as we get to know him through his ways? He is higher than us. He is infinitely more important, more valuable, more powerful, more everything than we are. Praise God. It would be terrible if God was basically like us. Ever thought about that? It's one of the biggest dangers of creating God in our own image, of making idols, of thinking that God is, is like us. He's not. He's bigger and he's better and he's more powerful and he's more wonderful in every way. The second thing we know of his ways from Scripture is that they are good. Psalm 107 verse 1 tells us, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. His ways are good and they are lasting. There is no definition of good outside of God. Let me say that again. There is no definition for good outside of God. The world, the secular world, stumbles around in the dark trying to define what is good apart from God or how we establish the idea of good apart from his moral standard but it simply cannot be done without borrowing or stealing from our good God. The world would try to say this is good and this is good, but they have no idea if they don't know that which has been eternally good. God's ways are good. The third thing we know about his ways is that they are holy. They are holy for he is holy. Right? The things that he does are set apart for a purpose. Church, when we think about God's ways being holy, it means that he is always doing the right thing. And what God does is the right thing. The psalmist wants us to know God's ways because in knowing God's ways, we know God. Now, there's far more that we could say here. Because if we really wanted to be exhaustive here, we could talk about how his ways are also just. They are also righteous. They are also mighty. They are infinite. His ways are also wonderful. His ways are also beautiful. Because when we talk about God's ways, we're always talking about what flows out of his character, out of who he is. This is stunning to me when I think about the second highlight in the psalm about knowing God. This is just amazing. There's two things the psalmist wants us to know. The first is how awesome are his ways. The second is how mighty his saving power is. Right? The psalmist wants the nations to know these things. How mighty his saving power is. Why? Because when we think about the nations, we think about everybody else. We think about where we once were. What we are confronted with is that there is 
tremendous power in this world that is not God and that is opposed to God. So the psalmist wants the nations to know just how powerful God's saving power is. Let me just read these words again for us. Right, verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Church, we think about God's saving power. There's a lot to think about here. First, this is a power over darkness. Right, think back to John 1. In him is light in the darkness has not overcome it. In the power, his saving power is power over death. Ephesians chapter 2, that while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God's saving power reaches in and draws us from death to life. This is, this is power over both the grave as well as an eternal death that would see us cursed for eternity. Church, his power in saving even is bigger than our will. For who apart, who of us, apart from his goodness, reaching out to us, would have sought him? He alone captures our will and bends it to his, that we might know him and be saved. Church, there is power in his saving grace, his saving work over our circumstances. This is really good news. For some of us, we have been stuck. We have been in lives entrenched, enslaved. For some of us, we have been held captive. For some of us, we have just been taken prisoner by our circumstances. But his power is even over those. There is nothing in your life that his saving power isn't bigger than and can rescue you from. And the psalmist says, look, I want the nations God wants the nations to know his ways and to know his saving power. Because as his saving power goes out, it is powerful enough to transform everything. Hear this right now. Some of us might need to hear this right now. There is no problem in your life that is too great for God to save you from. There is no sin that is too big, too deep, or too entrenched in your life that God can't save you from that and rescue from it completely. There is no person in your life holding you down, holding you back that God can't save you from because his power is great. This is the power for the nations. This is the power when we think about the world that we live in right now that should cause us to have hope. All right. I think about the world, even our country that we live in right now, the culture that we are surrounded by, the battles that we face. I think about the problems of this world. And yet, church, I have hope. Because when I look at God's saving power, there is no thing, no problem. His power will not overcome. That's because his saving power comes through the eternal gift of the Son. See, it's not just this vague concept of saving power. What is his saving power? His saving power is the Son of God laying his life down, his blood being spilled. His saving power is from the flowing blood of the one who saves. And just think about this, the blood of Christ, a single drop worth more than all of creation combined, flowed freely from his wounds because Jesus, because Jesus saves us. His blood, infinite in worth, what could ever be more costly there is nothing in your life, there is nothing in your children's lives, there is nothing in your spouse's life, there is nothing in your friend's life, your boss's life, there is nothing in your neighbor's life, there is nothing that is worth more or more powerful than a single drop of Christ's blood which flowed freely from the wounds that he took on freely so that you and I can be saved. That is the power of God's saving work in the nations and for the nations. 
So we've looked at what it means to be known, right? God's hope is to be known in the world. His ways and his saving grace, or saving power uh, specifically. That leads us to the second hope that we have, the hope that God has for the nations, and that is that they would praise him. Read with me verse 3 and verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. I love it when things repeat. This not only repeats twice in a row in each verse, but then it repeats the whole self a couple verses later. Right? The first hope that God would be known leads into the second hope because when you know God, what can you help but do? Praise Him. Right? That the nations would know Him, that the nations would praise Him. Church, the more we know of God, the quicker, the louder, and the stronger our praises in Him and for Him will be. For the entire course of my Christian life, from the moment that I believed in Christ, I have been compelled to worship. It has not been an option. It has not been a choice. And the more and more I get to know Him, the more and more I am compelled and church, I believe this is the way every one of us should be. That we have discovered the immeasurable grace, the work, the power of Christ. We've discovered who he is, and it draws us into praising him. This call in verse 5 comes immediately after, we're going to see this in just a minute, enjoying God. Enjoying God is part of praising Him, but praising Him also comes out of the enjoyment that we have. In church, when something is repeated over and over again in Scripture, we should pay attention to it. Back in verse 1, back in verse 1, there was a blessing that was, it was listed out. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us church the blessing the biggest blessing we could have is that we might begin to see god to see his face and out of that comes the nation's blessing out of that comes our praising of god when you think about what it means to praise him we've talked about this so many times this summer church i, I just need to ask again when we sing do you sing when you feel in your spirit the urge for your hands to go up, do you put your hands up? I mean, I literally talked to somebody a couple weeks ago who said, when we sing, I can just feel it in me, but I just can't do it. I won't do it. And he said to me, I know. I know that that's an obedience problem. It's sin. I said, yeah, it is. We are commanded in Scripture to sing we are commanded in Scripture to lift our hands up. We are commanded in Scripture to, to fall on our knees and praise. Now, we don't do that very often. We're a Baptist church. Can I ask you if you ever do that in your personal life? Is there ever a moment when you're praying or praying with you and just your spouse or praying in your prayer closet at home, you find yourself falling on your knees just praising Him? Church, praise compelled are you compelled to worship god when you walk out of your door tonight in the cool of the evening praise god that we're finally to a place where we have a cool evening and a cool morning the sun was rising this morning i don't know if anybody else saw it i don't know if you were up early enough or out your door early enough to see it it was magnificent were you compelled to just say wow god wow Church, do we praise God? Do we just praise Him? Will the nations just praise Him when they see Him? One of my favorite things to do is to hear of worship services from around the world. Dennis shared some of that with us at Fort Lyon just a couple weeks ago in mission to people who have utterly nothing and yet they have joy and they have praise and that is enough. If everything else was taken away from you, would your praise of God be enough to keep you going the rest of this week? 
Church, we praise, and this leads us to the third one, because, because we get to enjoy God. I was thinking about this, even this morning, a, a little bit deeper than I had been, even in the rest of my preparations for this sermon this week. What a privilege it is that we as a people get to enjoy God. This is the third hope that God has for the nations, that they would enjoy him, that they would enjoy him. How amazing is it that a people like you and I, who can't help but sin multiple times a day, and before we knew him constantly, always, could find enjoyment in a holy God? How is it possible that we, a people, could find any pleasure, any enjoyment in God? Church left to our own, people left to our own, the nations left to their own, have nothing but fearing and trembling and running and hiding from God as our first parents did in the Garden of Eden. Nothing but. To Adam and Eve, they had zero enjoyment of God in the Garden that day. They feared and they ran. Church, if it was a left to our own ends. We could not enjoy God. But the simple fact that we get to enjoy God is, is utterly astounding to us. It should be anyway. It's utterly astounding to me. Even more so, even more so, right? We think about, about finding joy in God's love and his mercy and his grace and all these, all these wonderful things. What's interesting to me, even more so in this psalm, is that that's not where the psalmist goes. He does not say that we would rejoice in God for his saving power, or his work, or his holiness, or his beauty, or any of these things. He lands in two of the most unlikely things for us to find joy in. The first, let's look at this, verse 4. Verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. We've covered that. For you judge the peoples with equity, and you guide the nations upon earth. The psalmist is inviting us to, and God in his hope for the nations is inviting a rejoicing in two unlikely things. The first is in his justice. The second is in his sovereignty. Okay? The first in his justice, that God would judge the peoples with equity. Now, if God was was unfair, if God was cruel, if God was unpredictable, there is no way that we could rejoice that anybody, even we who claim salvation, could rejoice in his justice because we would never know what was going to happen next. But we are invited, the nations are invited to worship him, to rejoice, to find joy in his judgment. This is going to give us a good view of what I think God's justice, what his judgment is. Friends, justice is God's work in a world that has gone terribly wrong. Justice is God's correction of the evils of this, of this existence, of sin, of, of trouble, of pain, of sorrow, and the things that cause it. Now, measured out in punishment for those who insist on going their own way, doing their own thing, most often at the expense of others. God abhors those who take advantage of the weak, vulnerable, even the foolish, or those who would be conned. Okay, God, we often say this, God hates sin. God hates sinners too. Now the good news is that he also loves sinners, but he hates sin. He hates those who hurt others, particularly when the hurt of others is against the weak and the powerless. Scripture after scripture, scripture, psalm after psalm, prophet after prophet, even all the way through the New Testament, what you see over and over again is that God cares when people hurt orphans and widows and the weak and the vulnerable. God cares. So what we're told is that God will measure out justice against those who do. Now to the weak, to those who have been injured, attacked, hurt, murdered, this is really good news because we, we can't cry out enough. We can't enact justice in this life for those things, but God can. 
and we should as a church, we should rejoice when those who caused sorrow and sin caused others to suffer when they are punished, when they are disciplined, when they are corrected. That is something the church should find joy in. Now it's equally so that we should find joy when people who did all those things find Jesus and therefore find life instead of punishment. Church, the, the, we, we rejoice in that because we, we are with those who are weak. But we also know that we have been those who have caused that pain, caused that hurt, caused that violence. We have done that ourselves. We rejoice that God does not punish us for those sins in the same way that he will not punish anyone who has come to him, who has come to Christ for salvation. He will not punish. But justice tells us that those who do wrong and who refuse to come to, to God will be punished, will be, they will be judged. The hard thing in this comes when, when those people are people that we love and care for, those people that we want to see come to Christ, but because they are, they are stubborn and they are sinful and they are lost, they do not. It is difficult to celebrate God's justice, but we celebrate God's justice. We rejoice in it because everything he does is good and everything he does is holy. And so when the nations look at God, they, they see the one who judges all, right? Those nations that are evil will be punished. Those people that are evil will be punished. And those who come to him for salvation will be saved. It's two sides of the same coin. And we rejoice. But not only for his big picture justice, but also for his his little picture justice. And this is what I think about for us. I think one of the most joyful times in my life, and this is really hard to understand if you're not a Christian. This is right now, if you're not a Christian in the room, you're going to start to think I'm, I'm crazy or weird or nuts and that you want no part of this. I will just tell you, I think the most joyful times in my life are those moments when someone comes to me and says, Matt, you're a sinner and you need help. When a brother comes to me with a scripture and says to me, hey, I see this in Scripture, and then I look at your life, and I don't see this. This doesn't measure up. This doesn't weigh out. Or a moment when the Holy Spirit just kind of crushes me in a, in a moment where, where I realize that, that I'm not living in a way for Jesus. In a moment where I realize that my joy is being taken because I have gone astray. These, church, these are the moments when we should actually find tremendous amounts of joy. If you're not a Christian, you may not understand that. You may not understand what it's like to have a holy God come to you and say, you are doing wrong, and here is grace, and here is growth. I was thinking about this, just in, in terms of this, the, the context of this. What is it, how is it that we can find joy in justice? We find joy when we are being corrected. Now, usually not in that moment, hear this, right? There's that moment when it comes to us and it hurts, but then there's a moment afterwards maybe months later, a week later, even a day later, even an hour later, who knows, where we realize that it's exactly what we needed and it brought us to where we needed to be. Singing about a moment like this a number of years ago in my ministry here at Calvary, uh, we were in a, a, a kind of a rough season. We had a lot of people coming and going, um, and I was really stressed and anxious and worried. And, um, and we had one particular group of people that I could tell were kind of getting ready to just leave the church. And that, as a pastor, by the way, is incredibly painful. And I remember one night I was walking around the park, and I had made five or six loops walking around the park, walking my dog around the park, and I'm crying out to the Lord about how to handle this and what to do and asking for wisdom and, and everything and just bringing all this to him. And, and I heard the Lord say, almost audibly, not quite, he said, do you even know the name of this other person who's in the church? Now, he was showing me that there was someone in our church, there was actually a bunch of someone's, an entire family unit, who had started coming, and for five, six, seven, eight weeks, they had been coming, and each week they actually brought somebody else with them. A new person came with them every time. And the Lord says, you are more concerned about losing this group of people who are already on their way out, the, out of the door than you are about this group of people who are here <laughs> and who I've given to you, who I've brought to you to love. That was one of those holy two-by-four moments in my, my ministry, my life. 
right? And it was the turnaround point as well in that whole situation. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) And it hurt, but then it was really good. This is God's justice. This is why the nations can rejoice, because they begin to see that God is in control, that God is doing what he's doing, and that he is correcting the hard And he's giving us something new, all right? That's the first thing that we're supposed to find joy in him. The second thing is sovereignty. This is the next place that right now, if you're not a Christian in this room, you're going to think, this is crazy. We live in a world where none of us want to let anything go, let alone our control of it. But the psalmist looks and says, here's the hope of God. Here's God's hope for the nations that they would realize that he is in control and they are not. Church, there is a moment in our lives where we realize, usually after we've come to salvation and we still think we're in charge of everything, that the reality is that God's ways, God's plans, God's everything is better than ours. And suddenly we can rejoice even though we are surrendering what we want to what he wants, where we just simply say, wow, God, this is way better. As Christians, we realize, we come to a moment where we realize God is in sovereign control. The world hates this idea. In fact, this is, I think, the number one thing that keep people, sinful, broken people who know their sin, know their brokenness, know the trouble in their life, from actually seeking the help from Christ that they would otherwise find. Because our salvation is not that we are saved alone, but that we are saved and call upon Jesus to be our Lord as well. The hope of the nations is not just that they would hear the saving work of the gospel, that's part of it, but that the nations would submit themselves to God as well, as you and I are called to, and I think mostly, largely have. Yet we still have a lot more work to do. This is one of those signs, I think, that God is truly in our lives, that we are truly saved first, that we know it is by his will that we are saved. Second, that we know that his plans for our lives are actually better than the ones we would make for ourselves. And third, that we actually begin to trust that head knowledge that his ways are better and start living like it actually is. Start submitting our own lives to him and what he wants. This is the hope for the nations, that they too would know God, praise God, that they would find joy in his justice and in his sovereignty, the fourth hope that God has for the world, that they would fear him. Verse 7, God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, we've spoken recently about fear, so I'm actually not going to spend that much time right here in this today. There's going to be a lot more to come, though. There are two types of fear when it comes to the Lord. There's the fear that draws us away from him, and there's the fear that draws him, us to him. As I mentioned earlier, Adam and Eve in the garden, after they had sinned, they experienced the kind of fear that that caused them to hide, run, and flee from God when what they should have done if they had truly known him is be drawn to him and cry out to him for help and for mercy. Everybody in this existence will fear God. Everybody will. Whether in this life or going into the next in judgment. Church, when we think about what our mission is here, we think about the heart for the nations, we do not want a single person in this world, let alone specifically Lahana, Los Animas, in the valley, to get to that second fear to the judgment fear without having made a conscious choice to either fear him in this life, fear him to him, or fear him away from him. Here at Calvary, we talk about our vision a fair bit to make Jesus non-ignorable in Lahana and to the ends of the earth. When we talk about Jesus being non-ignorable, this is exactly what we're talking about. We want to do our part in the mission of God so that there would be nobody who gets to the other side and says, well, I didn't know but that everybody in this life would have the chance to see who he is, what he's doing, and to be drawn to him rather than be sent away. We believe, we believe that the world will encounter 
him. We want that encounter to be one that, that they fear into drawing to him, that their lives will be submitted to him. Church, God has a heart for the nations. He also has a hope for the nations, okay? The question is, do we? Do we have a heart and a hope for the nations? Not only do we, but is our heart and hope for the nations aligned with his heart and hope for the nations? Church, come back to me, or back with me to verse 1 again. Hear this. This is a blessing. This is over you and me. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. This is the most powerful, amazing, joyous blessing that is in Scripture. You actually see it a bunch of times. That God's face, right, would shine upon us. This is, this is powerful, by the way. When we think about this blessing, this, this blessing is a simultaneous acknowledgement that that is not true of any of us unless God is working in our lives. See, God, God is so holy and so wonderful, so beautiful, that if we were to look on him in a sinful state, we would die. The blessing in Scripture is not that you would die, but that you would have received the grace and the mercy of God, the forgiveness that only comes through him, so that if we were to look upon God, we could see him and know him, right? This is the blessing that is upon all of us. Church, I pray that every one of us would be a people for whom this blessing is true. For when Christ came into this world and he introduced himself to us, he said, look, if you see me, you see who? You see God. In Christ, sinners can see the face of God and not die but instead have life. And it comes, as we see in verse 1, through the gracious gift, the blessing that comes to us. What is a blessing? It's something that we don't earn. It's given to us. It's offered freely, right? What the psalmist is saying is that, look, if you have received the gracious blessing of salvation in your life, that going into verse 2, it will result in something. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth. I want to bring us to us that, that word that, right? May God be gracious to us and bless us, make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known. What the psalmist is saying, what God is saying in his scripture here is that it is the gift to us, the blessing to us of being able to see God experience salvation in Christ Jesus, that will then cause the rest of the earth to know God, to praise God, to find joy and rejoice in God, and to fear God. God has chosen in his infinite goodness and mercy and plan to use uh, the blessing of us, you and I, and every other Christian that lives, to be the means by which the nations will actually see him and praise him and find joy in him and fear him and to find salvation in him. It is a cause. And so the question we have to ask is, is, is our heart the same? Is our hope for the nations the same as his? The answer, of course, is no. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a heart for the nations and a hope for the nations. But number one, even if we were to be able to measure up word for word every hope and heart desire that God has for the nations, we could never measure up the quantity. For his love is way, way bigger than ours, right? It's infinite. So church, what does it look like for us to match our heart with God's heart, to match our hope up with God's hope? Here's the first thing we need to do. The first thing is we need to repent. We need to say to him, Lord, I have not loved the nations. I have not loved the peoples of this earth. I have not had an endeavor and a vision like you do to see your glory to every corner of this earth. And church, there's no way we all have. There's no way we have in every way we should have. The first thing we do is repent. Repent sometimes seems like a dirty word. I don't want to repent. It means I've done something wrong. Yes, praise the Lord. We've all done something wrong. And he gives us this beautiful chance to repent. I was thinking about this. And I've talked about this recently, about repentance. 
Church, repentance is this thing that we do when we realize that we've messed up big, when what we're supposed to be doing is repenting so often because we realize we're constantly not measuring up to him. We, we repent into him. And it reminds us daily, sometimes it reminds us minutely of how much we need him every day. The first thing we do when we realize that our heart and hope for the nations is not what God's is, is we need to repent and we need to ask him to make it so. The second thing we need to do is pray. We need to pray. We need to pray, first of all, for our missionaries. Ian and Haley Mack in Southeast Asia, right? Ian and Haley spent the summer with us. We got to know them pretty well. We want to keep lifting them up in prayer. We want to keep, keep lifting them up, the mission that they're on. We're, we're a part of that with them. As a church, you need to hang one of their little things up or you need to put a reminder in your phone so that every day we, we just lift them up in prayer. Here's a couple other names I'll mention to you. Pray for Erica and Maloxi Mieni. Now, Maloxi was not a good pronunciation of his name. I've never been able to pronounce it. He's an African national who Betsy and I supported missions. He's also in their part of the Calvary family. They're missionaries in Africa. We need to be praying for them. Here's another name, Jessica Evans. From our sending church, they're about to send Jessica Evans, who is, who is their like office guru, person who has basically helped the Calvary family become what it is by doing admin work. She's leaving this, this year to go to France to work with Muslim people in Paris. At some point in the next uh, month or two, I think she's going to come down and share some of her story and some of what's going on. We need to be praying for her now. All right, there are other missionaries that you know that we know we just need to be lifting up, even generically. Lord, we're going to watch the news, right? You watch the news and you see that there's trouble for Christians in Nigeria or in this place or that place. We need to pray for the missionaries there. Let that be a daily part of, of your prayer life, is praying for missionaries. Here's some others we need to pray for. Pray for the local Christians in every one of these places that we consider to be the nations, to be the world, to be the peoples. Pray for the local Christians. Those who are being persecuted especially. Pray for those who are giving their lives up for the mission of God. Pray for those who are suffering for their faith. Pray for those who just need to share the gospel with a neighbor today over coffee. Right? Pray for the local Christians in every place that we consider to be the nations. Third, pray for resources. Pray for money, for people, for training for these places. One of the biggest missionary endeavors that, that, that I think is, is helpful is praying that, that people who have educations here, who have these great degrees like myself or Dennis, right, might get the chance to use those to go help people who don't even have a, a third grade education study and read the Bible and, and, and learn as pastors, right, to learn to preach and to teach and to lead their churches in all kinds of places, right? Pray for training for places that don't have the, the, the blessing of training that, that some of us have gotten. All right, so first, we are going to repent. Second, we're just going to pray. We're going to pray. The third is that we're going to get involved. We're going to get involved. Three ways to get involved in this. The first is that there's going to be a number of short-term missions opportunities through the Calvary family coming up that we're going to tell you about. What you're going to do is you're going to go home, and in your prayer life, you're going to say, Lord, do I need to go on this? And when he says yes, you're going to go. <laughs> okay, that's the first. Now, maybe there's other opportunities as well. Maybe you know of other missions agencies. Maybe you're connected to World Vision or Compassion or any number of other, other places that are doing short-term missions, whether in the States or out of the States, whatever. And one of those comes across, or you get a prayer letter from a missionary that says, hey, pray about joining us for a season or for a week or for a summer or something. And you know what you need to do? You need to sit down in your prayer closet and you need to say, Lord, I was just invited to this. Should I consider it? Here's another consideration you might need to make in this endeavor. You might get asked to help out with Los Animas. You might not get asked to help out with Los Animas for a season, for two, three, four, six months a year. And maybe you just need to say, you know what, Calvary Lawn is my church, but for a season, I'm going to go, and I'm going to help. Okay? 
Here's another opportunity. Maybe some of you are already thinking, you know what? I know God has called me to missions. I've denied it over and over again. I've done nothing with it. There is a Calvary Family Missions Cohort training that's going to be beginning this fall. If that's something that you would be interested in, come talk to me. It's a Zoom thing, so you can do it from anywhere, right? And so if you're trying to figure out a discernment into a call to missions, whether long-term or short-term, or how you can be involved in missions, to have a bigger heart for it, an hour and a half every couple weeks is worth your time. Come check in with me or, or check on Facebook. We'll be posting stuff about that um, or in, in emails, right? One of the beautiful things about being part of the Calvary family is we don't do all our own training here. We have other people doing training all over the place, and it's great. We can participate in that, right? Another way to go, when you walk out of those doors this morning, realize that you have walked into the nation's. The nations begins the moment we leave this place. The nations begin when you leave your home. Or actually, for some of us, the nations might begin when we walk into our home. We want to make Jesus not ignorable in Lahana and to the ends of the earth. There's, there's a spectrum there. We, uh, we live in a town with a college that in practice seeks out athletes from around the world to come and have an education here and play for them. At any one time, there are 20 to 30 nationalities represented on the sports teams. You could get involved with them. What happens if they discover Jesus and then go home and bring that with them? Here's another opportunity, Fort Lyon. Right, Wednesday nights, we go out to Fort Lyon. Here are people who come to the valley for, for two years, up to two years, and then a lot of them, what do they do? They go. What would happen if we could reach hundreds of those Fort Lyon peoples like we've reached dozens of them so far? And, and instead of staying here, they get the vision to say, hey, look, I love Jesus. I'm going back to my hometown, and I'm going to go tell people about Jesus. Okay, you can get involved in that. All right, so that's going. Number two is sending. Sending. Church, i got to ask you a question. What would happen if we as a church sent one missionary or one church plant or one replant out every single year for the, the rest of the life of Calvary Lana? What would that be like? Well, I'll tell you the first thing it would be like. We would slowly shrink. It would be painful. But how amazing is it going to be when the McDaniel family finally clear up their eight pews and they get to Los Animas and we're over here worshiping and we are to the knowledge that there are 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people over there worshiping the Lord. We lost them, you know, but they're over there and the kingdom's growing. Church, we, I think we need to have a vision for this. One of the things that it means if we were to set a goal, which we haven't, but maybe we should, of sending out one church plant or replant or missionary family every year is that we need to bring people in to do that, right? We need to be on mission here, drawing folks in so that we can then send them out. Something to think about. To be praying that we would send that we would be willing to hold each other with open arms so that we can go when we need to go. Church, a third way to get involved is to give. Is to give. And, and some of us just need to pray about what the Lord might want us to give. Right? Giving here at Calvary means that we are supporting various church plants and, and missionaries and things. Some of us need to be thinking about missionaries that we know. Maybe there's a missionary you want to reach out to and say, hey, look, I, I'd, I'd like to become a, a giver, a regular giver. I'd like to help fund missions, ministry. Okay, it's something we need to be praying about. Church, I want you to hear this well as we finish, finish this up. My, my hope and my prayer is that this has been a really encouraging time as we look at the hope of God for the nations and, and for us as well. Hear this really well. I've been thinking about this um, this week. You can be a young Christian who does not care about the nations. You can be an immature Christian that does not care about the nations. 
You can be an ignorant Christian that does not care about the nations, but you cannot be a faithful Christian who does not care about the nations and about God's mission to cause the world to know him, to praise him, to enjoy him, and to fear him. You can be young, immature, ignorant, or you can be faithful. I pray that we would all be faithful. I pray our church would be faithful as we have a heart and a hope for the nations. Amen? Let us, uh, let us pray. God, we just thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for what you've done in your word and revealing your heart. God, not only for us, because we too are included in the nations, but Lord, for all the lost peoples of this earth that still need to know you, need to encounter the gospel, need to come to salvation and faith. Lord, we pray that we would be a part of that in whatever way you call us to, Lord, that you would strengthen us and encourage us and equip us um, to be a people, Lord that pray, Lord, that go, that send, that give, Lord, that we would be a people who, who live out your mission. Lord, I thank you and praise you for what you've done in our lives, drawing us to you. And God, we do pray if there's anyone in this room right now who doesn't know you yet, God, that you would draw them to yourself even now, that they would. If there's any of us who need to grow, Lord, in our love for the nations, for for people who are lost, who had for your glory in the world, Lord, I pray that, that you would do that work in us too. Lord, your Holy Spirit would draw us from, from either being young or mature or ignorant, Lord, into a mature faith that, that's on board with your mission. God, we thank you and, Lord, we praise you for what you've done in our doing in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we thank you and praise you that we are privileged to be a part of it. Not of anything we've done, Lord, but by everything you've done. Lord, we thank you and praise you.